There are canonical texts, and then nothing happened until Europeans arrived and colonization started. Obviously, it's pretty frustrating to hear um, and speaks to some pretty large problems. It was really out of that sort of frustration that we just have this massive gap in a record. We have this, this absence of knowledge. You know, if, if any of us think that we can learn more that will benefit the present by studying ideas about the past, they shouldn't just be combined to, confined sorry, to the Christian West. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language... Bruno Shirley discusses his graduate research into Buddhist intellectual histories of political thought and his accompanying study of Sinhala, Tamil, and other less commonly taught languages. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are speaking with Bruno Shirley, a graduate student in the Department of Asian Studies here at Cornell. Bruno has studied both Sinhala and Tamil through our shared course initiative with Columbia and Yale, and his work focuses on changing ideas and practices of Buddhist sovereignty as well as accessible digital tools for students in the humanities. We will discuss all this and more on our podcast today. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Bruno. Hello, it's lovely to be here. So we usually like to start out our podcast by asking our guests to share a little bit about themselves and their path with languages. So let's hear it. Yeah, so my um, my path with languages was actually quite unusual for my field, which is at its core Buddhist studies. Um, Buddhist studies really tends to attract people who realize early on that they have a real passion for learning languages. They, they can't get enough of it and mm-hmm. they're just trying to look for well, among other reasons for getting into Buddhist studies, they really want to have some kind of academic field or profession where they get to make the most of that skill. Um, so it's very common for people, particularly working on early Buddhism, to sort of already have Sanskrit, Pali, Tibetan, classical mm-hmm, Chinese, mm-hmm. Japanese, before they're even looking at grad school. Yeah. Um, I did not take that route. I, I never really took language learning seriously um, for most of my life. And I actually started out in political science. was hmm. sort of once I ended up um, coming to grad school for Buddhist studies and really trying to take seriously Buddhist political ideas. And I was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to do some catch up here hmm. and really yeah. start to uh, yeah. make the most of what Cornell has to offer in terms of the, particularly the less commonly taught languages sure. like Sinhala and Tamil. Well, so your focus of study involves historical Buddhism and intersections of kingship, religion, and gender performance. You've described it as Buddhist intellectual histories of political thought. Can you walk us through what led you to these topics and tell us more about your work? Absolutely. So, um, as I said, I started out in political science, and I was really interested in political theory. We did sort of the history of political theory, and we looked at, you know, St. Augustine and St. Thomas of Aquinas Mm -hmm. and Hobbes. And these are all very, very Christian people, many saints. Mm. And because I'd always had this sort of interest in Buddhism, I pretty reasonably asked, okay, well, what does that's, you know, Christian political theory, what does the history of Buddhist political theory Mm. look like? And the answer was usually, well, either we don't know or Mm. sometimes it didn't really exist. There are canonical texts and then nothing happened until Europeans arrived and colonization started, Uh which... um, Obviously, is pretty frustrating mm. to hear yeah. um, and speaks to some pretty large problems. There are, of course, now more scholars working on this, particularly in East Asia. My advisor here at Cornell, Anne Blackburn, is doing some really wonderful work um, 
but it was really out of that sort of frustration that we just have this massive gap in the record. Sure. We have this this absence of knowledge. And, you know, if, if any of us think that we can learn more that will benefit the present by studying ideas about the past, they shouldn't just be combined to, mm-hmm. confined, sorry, to the Christian West. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, and so now here I am doing um, <laughs> very, very niche studies of uh, 12th century Sri Lanka. Wow, that's crazy. So you already talked a little bit about how learning less commonly taught languages has kind of infiltrated your your area of, of study and interest. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience learning these less commonly taught languages here in Cornell and exactly what the connection there is between your work and your own teaching? Absolutely. So the less commonly taught languages... Um, that I'm working with here, as I said, are Sinhala, which is uh, the majority language from Sri Lanka, and then Tamar, which is spoken um, as a majority language in, in some parts of South India, mm-hmm. Tamil Nadu particularly, but then also it's a significant minority language in Sri Lanka and in other places around South and Southeast Asia as well. And in, and I should say as well, in their diasporas, including sure. um, diasporas of Asian Americans, including people here at Cornell. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people who are taking these courses um, very reasonably want to speak these languages. Mm-hmm. They are they are very much living languages. We have heritage speakers here at Cornell. We have students who maybe have friends who who spoke these languages and just think, yeah, that sounds really cool. I yeah. wish I too could speak yeah. Sinhala. Um, and as a result, a lot of the curriculum here is really geared towards building up your spoken competency, building up your um, your reading abilities with contemporary literature. So can you read a mm-hmm. newspaper? Can you sort of operate in day-to-day life? And that's all, you know, very important sure. to someone who likes to spend time in that part of the world. But obviously my research is focused <laughs> on the 12th century. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's it's very interesting. It has been very interesting for me to be in these classes where we are focusing on like building up conversational competency. Yeah. And then me sort of going, wow, I really want to be, you know, reading this very, very archaic form of the language mm-hmm. and these old written texts. Um, and then it's also been actually, you know, a little frustrating, particularly, you know, with the pandemic, not being able to travel. And then having spent all these years working on these old texts, and then I I sort of go back, I want to talk to my friends in Singular, and I realize I've forgotten how to talk like a normal Uh. 21st century person. (laughs) Um, So uh, it's it's a pretty strange experience sort of doing really historically oriented work as a graduate student and, and trying to make the most of these programs as they're designed, but also get what I need from my research out of it. Yeah. And then also not sound like a, a you know, a small <laughs> child when I speak these languages who can't remember basic vocabulary, but knows words about, you know, government, statecraft, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. gender very, very yeah. well. Yeah. It's, it's a strange experience. Yeah. Well, in addition uh, to your interest in Buddhism and and everything surrounding that, uh, you also have an interest in making digital tools feel more accessible to scholars in the humanities. Uh, and you've mentioned particularly tools for digital map making. What inspired your interest in this area and what have you learned from pursuing it? So in terms of the inspiration, again, a lot of this comes down to, um, you know, lockdown. I couldn't, uh, mm. couldn't go my field work, mm-hmm. had a lot of spare time in my hands. I wanted to develop some skills. Um, I think it's, it's increasingly important for scholars, particularly like, you know, quote unquote, junior scholars Mm -hmm. to have at least some degree of digital competency. Um, because I think that, you know, these, these digital tools can seem very inaccessible at first, but can be so helpful in our research if we sort of know enough of our way around them that we can, um, at least try to apply them. 
that's obviously really difficult when we're working with, again, very archaic um, uh, or classical languages from parts of the world that don't sure. tend to be attended to. And like, you know, it's not exactly, say, Google's priority in developing good like <laughs> language models mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. 12th century Pali. <laughs> um, so, I mean, map making, obviously, you know, I, I, you know, I can do these nice maps. And it's actually really easy to do nice maps. I, I, I do a lot of, um, I try to do a lot of sort of like tutorials and outreach for, for scholars who really wish they could make nice maps and don't know how easy it is. But I will admit it's a little harder to try and think about, you know, putting, um, say, database or integrating databases into those maps, trying to work with historical data and having to make calls on, you know, how we accommodate this really intensely multilingual environment. Um, Sri Lanka in the 12th century, uh, there were at least four languages that were used. Well, there were three that were used highly interchangeably. So Sinhala, Pali, and Sanskrit. Um, people would switch between them in a single mm. text. Uh, you might have, you know, common, um, a single name or place name will have variant names in each of these that can be referred to in any yeah. language. And then Tamar is also very much in the mix. Everyone's reading Tamar, even if they're not necessarily all writing in it. So it's um, trying to put that into a, a nice, clear, uncluttered map or database or um, even just sort of a nice computer-readable, um, machine-readable uh, data format, yeah. you have to make a lot of um, difficult and subjective choices sure. about which languages you're prioritizing at certain times or the other, or which languages you're conflating or which terms you're conflating versus when you might want to leave mm-hmm. them distinct. Um, it's a it's a fun challenge. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm saying that both very, very genuinely and a little bit sarcastically. It's, it's very fun. <laughs> it's Great. So you've given us glimpses into the work that you're doing, but can you synthesize in like your elevator pitch here um, what your thesis is actually about? Absolutely. So as I say, my my sort of body of work is really born out of this frustration that we we just don't know what political theory looked like in the, basically the entire period between the closing of the, the Pali canon or the, the collection of scriptures written mm-hmm. in this language Pali Maybe sometimes we consider um, the 5th century commentaries of Buddhaghosa upon that canon and then sort of nothing until you know, white people come along and, and start radically yeah. changing that part of the world. So I'm trying to flesh that out a little more. And in particular, I'm trying to argue that there was actually original and innovative political thought happening in that space in between. Mm. It was happening sometimes in the Pali language, but sometimes also in what we call vernacular or local languages like Sinhala and Tamar, mm-hmm. and sometimes in Sanskrit as well, which... Um, because of uh, complex historical reasons, often when we think about Buddhism and Sanskrit, we assign it to a particular sect or tradition of Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism, which we maintain, or most of the scholarly literature says, is not present in Sri Lanka that late. So when texts are in Sanskrit, we tend to ignore them and go, that doesn't fit our narrative. If it's Buddhist, it has to be in Pali. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And the dissertation in particular, I'm looking at... um, a series of monarchs and monks from the 12th century who I argue are putting forward some conflicting visions of what it meant to be a good Buddhist king. Mm. And in particular, uh, how that idea of sort of good Buddhist kingship intersected with morality Hmm. um, and how it intersected with masculinity as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the idea was if you're a good Buddhist king, that means that fundamentally you're a good man. Mm. And that... um, pose some interesting challenges for the period's female monarchs who had kind of some creative um, performances of kingship of how they presented themselves as good Buddhist kings, which sort of Hmm. um, 
practices of masculinity they might selectively engage with and which they might try to avoid. Um, But ultimately, it's it's just really trying to take uh, their outputs in in literary works and scholastic works, but even things like inscriptions or art and architecture, seriously as political philosophy and Hmm. think, okay, what does this tell us about relationships or the potential possible relationships between power, morality, and gender or masculinity in particular? That's interesting. So do you have reading proficiency then in Pali and Sanskrit as well? Yes. Um, I had Pali before I came to Cornell okay. because it's, you know, again, this good yeah. Buddhist language you should have. Um, yeah. I started doing Sanskrit, which is entirely um, taught as a classical language. It's entirely a reading language. Um, after I arrived here, uh, I'd put off learning Sanskrit for quite a long time on the grounds that mm-hmm. Buddhism in Sri Lanka doesn't use Sanskrit. And then I realized that that's, that's actually not true. Yeah. Um, and then through the LRC, I've been doing Sinhala, which is taught here by um, Professor Bandara Hirat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've only relatively recently started Tamar. Uh, okay. So it sounds like you would make a good Buddhist king then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, there is the morality side of it, <laughs> I suppose. Um, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, I did just want to say, uh, you know, uh, be, because because we mentioned to our last guests that you were going to be on the show and someone said, oh, you should ask him about the three-minute thesis presentation. Okay, so the three-minute thesis competition is run every year by Cornell's Graduate School. It's based off a competition that started in a Australia, actually, which is very near to, but not my country. I'm from New Zealand, um, just because the accent can be misleading. Uh, and basically, the idea is that, well, the, the the idea behind it is that graduate students are often not very good at these elevator pitches. You ask mm. me to give an elevator pitch, and it probably went on for a bit longer than a, the normal elevator mm. ride. Depends on what elevator you're in. Yeah, I mean, a very, <laughs> a very tall building. Yes. Um, and basically, the idea of the thesis, the three-minute thesis competition is that you have three minutes and one static slide, no animations, no slide mm-hmm. transitions, to distill what's interesting about your dissertation to a very, very mixed and general audience. Um, so it's run every year here at Cornell. All I think it's all PhD students after their A exams and maybe also master's students are eligible to enter it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I did it last year. It was very, very fun. Um, and then I also did uh, sort of uh, a regional variant of it among like northeastern schools, uh, which was also very fun. Um, and yeah, I've got no real, that this is, this sentence isn't really going anywhere now. No, but, that's, <laughs> but you, it was fun you. and you should do it. it was, there, there, we there we go. I like it. I like it. Well, and, and I'm sure you've heard of this too. The, um, American Association for the Advancement of Science, they do an annual contest that is the annual dance your PhD contest where these scientists put a dance performance. So, so they articulate their, their dissertation in in that format, which is quite amazing to watch. I definitely don't have the rhythm for that. I'm going to stick with the three minutes of talking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave the dancing to my partner. Um, okay, there, there her, we go. Her dissertation will be brilliant as uh, interpretive dance, I'm sure. There we go. I love that. You've talked a lot about your work and the different languages you've learned along the way. Um, what advice do you have for students who are interested in studying less commonly taught languages? What might be different about that journey than studying, say, French or Spanish? So my advice for students 
thinking about studying less commonly taught languages is to do it. Um, we have, I mean, they, they have that name for a reason. We have languages that you can basically only learn here at Cornell. Mm -hmm. um, Singhala is a great example. Yep. Outside of Sri Lanka, there are uh, there was a university in the UK you could study it at. There may still be a university in China, I think, uh, Tsinghua, that, that has at least some level of Singhala. But Cornell is really the only place that has a Singhala professor teaching yep. at all three levels of the language. Um, so this is, you know, it's a really unique opportunity. And this, because these classes are usually taken by much, uh, a much smaller number of students mm -hmm. than something like intro to French or sure. intro Japanese, you also get a lot more face time with the teacher. Um, hopefully, me promoting this will slightly change that. This is somewhat counterintuitive. Um, but, you know, I, I've been in singular classes where there's sort of three or four of us and the professor in the mm -hmm. room. And that makes for a very different language environment to say sure. if you're going to a lecture with, you know, 100, yeah. 200 yeah. people in it, and then you've got your little discussion sections, um, you, make, you can make progress a lot faster. And the singular curriculum is a great example of that. By the end of the first year, you're pretty much done with, you have at least a basic grasp of all of the elements of spoken grammar. You can have pretty decent conversations. You, you can, you know, you can get around and, and operate pretty well. The second year is just about building your fluency, expanding your vocabulary. And then the third year, um, you're tackling literary singular. Yeah. Um, singular is a diglossic language. Mm -hmm. The literary grammar is different. Uh, so it does need a whole, you know, separate sure. year to work through that. But, you know, you, you can make very surprisingly fast progress in these these small focused mm -hmm. classes great um, so there is no downside take these languages they're great i like it there yes. you have it people take all the languages especially the less commonly taught ones well and all the languages we don't <laughs> we, we we support all the languages all the languages but especially those run by the department for asian studies <laughs> <laughs> please and thank you <laughs> i like it so, Bruno, where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? That is a great question. <laughs> Stay tuned for my forthcoming dissertation. Ah, <laughs> um, there we go. What's the timeline on that? Dare I ask? That's a question you never should ask a PhD student. That is a very hurtful question, yes. yes. So, um, so I, I'm currently in my fifth year. I'm probably going to aim to defend toward the end of my sixth year. Okay. Um, I was really optimistic I was going to smash this thing out in five years. So oh, you, you don't need that much time to write a dissertation. And it turns out actually with, you know, a pandemic and oh, interrupted yeah. field work and everything, you know, you, you, you do need quite a bit of time to write a dissertation. Sure. So um, hopefully at some point in the next academic year, there we um, go. it'll be done. Great. Well, we so appreciate you coming in and chatting with us. Uh, but before we sign off, We'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn, that makes you laugh. What is that word? Um, so I have to confess, I, I was given warning this question would come up, and I spent the entire last week trying to think of a, <laughs> a good enough answer. And the best I could come up with is, and I think this really illustrates some of the difficulty of both, you know, working with these sort of very still very living languages but then you know doing a research on these very archaic things there's there's a word in sanskrit umbar which is a very respectful way of addressing a woman mm -hmm. um you know usually a mother because you know maternal imagery is very important patriarchy whole side point um and there is a word in contemporary singular umba which means mango <laughs> and the number of times that i have sat around in a reading group with my my friends you know all good good proper Sanskritists 
with some complicated philosophical text around, and I'll go, look, I'm really struggling with this section. You know, why is the Buddha so interested in mangoes? What, what, is, <laughs> what is the point of this sermon here? Um, <laughs> nice. It hasn't happened a lot, but it has happened at least once, and it, it, I found that quite funny. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's answer. great. Uh, oh, my. Well, thanks so much for speaking of language with us today, Bruno. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, it was a blast. Next week, we'll speak with Isabel Kohanovsky and Dennis Wagner, PhD candidates in German studies at Cornell, about language teaching, cosmic contacts, and puppets. Until then, auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.